Thank you very much, Pastor Rapp and Mrs. Holker for the invitation. And Mrs. Holker's son, of course, is a student at Lutheran High School, and maybe this will count for extra credit for him to invite a teacher from there. As Pastor Rapp mentioned, I have just retired from Lutheran High School after 25 years of teaching science and religion there. And it's not been all that long that I can remember what it's like to teach in a high school. I also teach at Nassau Community College. I see Mrs. Alpin here, Louise's mother, and I don't know how many years ago it was that Louise, her daughter, was in my astronomy class at Nassau. It must be 15 years. But let me tell you a little what teaching is like. I had a physics test and of course, physics is not the easiest subject, and the results were not all that terrific. And in disgust, I told the students, after giving the test grades back, will all the dumbbells in this class please rise? Nobody got up. Finally, one student got up in the back of the room, and in surprise, I said, do you mean to say you admit you're a dumbbell? And he said, no, but I hate to see you standing there alone. That's what teaching is like in the less than best days. But being retired from high school teaching also now gives more time, as Pastor App mentioned, for writing. I have for over 20 years been a co-author of Modern Physics, which is, thanks be to God, the most widely used physics text in the United States in high schools at the present time and in which I can get some of the concepts that I'm going to talk about this evening into the nation's public schools. We have more time for traveling. We're waiting anxiously for our next eclipse of the sun, which will take place in July 1991. If you want to mark your calendars now, it's going to be in Mexico City, where there are already 11 million people living, and there will be another million or so tourists at that time. I have more time for family and especially for golf with our son Fritz. Every Monday we're out there on the golf course. It reminds me of a story I heard about the Pope when he was here for a visit. And this is not uh, a cantankerous anti-Catholic joke at all, I want to tell you. The Pope was out golfing in Florida on his last visit. He and his caddy were near a water hazard and he put three golf balls in a row into the water. And finally, he turned to his caddy and he said, I think I know what I'm doing wrong. I forgot to pray before I hit the ball. So they paused and he prayed and he put the next ball in the water. And the caddy said, Holy Father, I have a suggestion for you. The next time you pray before you hit the golf ball, keep your head down. And there is a meaning in that story. It's not just a golfing joke. If you know the most common mistake in golf is you don't keep your head down. My son Fritz last Monday had a terrible score. He's always saying, you're pulling your head up. And if there's any central thought about what I want to tell you this evening, it is that when we pray, which represents our religious life, we should keep our head down and look at the earth that God has created, which is the study of science. 
We've got to keep our head down, our feet on the ground, and the prayers in our hearts going heavenward. I want to talk about science and religion, science and Christian faith, which in my view are two of the most important concepts in the modern world. And for many people, those two concepts don't agree very well. I meet a lot of students at Lutheran High School, at Nassau Community College, and around the country, and a lot of teachers of those students who have difficulty reconciling what they learn in a science textbook with what they learn by reading the Bible and going to church. And if there's any single thing that I'm trying to do in life with the time that God has given me, it is to help resolve that problem. And in the next few minutes, I want to give you some ideas of how that problem can be resolved. I want to base it on the passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where the apostle says, Have reverence for Christ in your hearts, and honor him as Lord. Be ready at all times to answer anyone who asks you to explain the hope you have in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. At work, in school, wherever we go, we meet people who have doubts, we, have, we meet people who have problems, we meet people who read the daily paper and don't quite know how to mesh their faith with their daily lives. And we're there in order to help our fellow human beings resolve that problem. We're there to be witnesses to the hope that is in us and to do it with gentleness and respect. Now, if we're going to do it with gentleness and respect, we first of all have to know what we're talking about. We have to know as much as it is given to us to know by watching the TV news and by reading the paper what kind of an age are we living in? What are scientists discovering today and talking about today? What are the MBAs of the world trying to sell us? And we have two children who are MBAs, so I'm not putting them down. I'm only beginning to understand that what we buy in the store was put there and advertised to us by some MBA in marketing. How do we mesh these things with our Christian faith? I'd like to give you a kind of a five-minute overview of where science stands today. And hopefully, you'll learn one or two words that you can throw around that people will say, wow, that person really is intelligent. But I've learned something about going to school in science and associating with the world scientists, and that is that whenever a concept gets very difficult to understand, you just make up a word for it so that the people will stop asking questions. And I'm going to give you some of those in terms. There's nothing new about this, but the word is new. I was invited recently as one of a group of 100 physicists in the country to attend a conference at Fermilab near Chicago, which is the largest atom smasher in the world, and then a week in Palo Alto at Stanford University to see what's new in science and what we should teach our young people in high school and college about those new concepts.
So these, I am fairly confident that the words I'm throwing out are the in words right now. At least I'm writing that in my physics book, which is coming out later this year. First of all, the world has some new terms about the very small. What is everything made of? What is the smallest possible thing there is? It's interesting that to find out what the smallest possible thing is, we have to make the biggest machines ever built. And Congress is right now contemplating spending $5 billion on building a new atom smasher called the Superconducting Super Collider. It can't get much more super. And we don't know where it's going to be built. New York just lost the race. New York just lost it because the town that was in the bidding had a protest and said, we don't want those things here. So New York is out. It's going to be Texas, California, somewhere. It's going to be a 100-mile underground tunnel where they're going to smash little particles together and take pictures of the pieces. It's a little bit like taking a wristwatch and smashing it on the table to see what it's made of. That's not the best way, but it's the only way we know. Since we can't take the pieces apart one at a time, they're stuck together too well. What are the pieces? We think at the present time that everything in the universe, the smallest particles, are either quarks or leptons or bosons. So if you're taking notes, those are three good words to use today. Quarks, the word has no meaning. In German, it means cottage cheese. When we were in Germany, I bought some quark. You can get quark, lemon-flavored, and all that. But in science, quark heißt nicht cottage cheese. Quark is just a word somebody made up one day, and now it's in the dictionary. Quark is a very small piece of something, and we've seen a picture of one now, and already we know about a whole bunch of different kinds of quarks, and they have very strange names. One of them is called the up. Naturally, another one is called down. And then another one is called bottom. The other one is called top. Another one is called charm. <laughs> and finally, they ran out, and they have one called strange. So now we have six quarks, and for each one of those, there's an anti-quark. Now we're up to 12. And each one of those comes in three colors. Now we've got 36 quarks. But that's just the beginning. Now come the leptons. And if you're a student of the New Testament in Greek, you know that lepton is a small Greek coin that the widow put into the collection plate. And when it says that Jesus said she has put everything she owns into that plate, it was a lepton. So leptons are even smaller than quarks. The electron is a lepton, and a boson holds the whole thing together. Boson is named after Mr. Bose from India. There are different kinds of bosons. So, does this make any sense? No, it doesn't. And we have the vaguest idea what's going to happen when we smash quarks into each other. Will there be new pieces? Does it matter when they're spending $5 billion we ask the people in these atom smash laboratories, what is the importance of all this? And Dr. Burton Richter, who got the Nobel Prize for working with quarks, told us, 100 people gathered in the auditorium at Stanford University, ladies and gentlemen, we're doing this to find out how God put the universe together. 
Now that startled me, number one, that he mentioned God and that nobody got up and said, you're violating the First Amendment. And secondly, that these people realize that it is God who made the universe. I was not expecting that. I, I was not prepared for that in reading the textbooks that I had in school, that we should be talking about God in science. Well, let's go to the very large, way out yonder. What's out there? How far does it go? Where does it end? Well, the inwards in the very out distant beyond are things like quasars. Now, you can buy one in a store, a quasar is a television set, but a quasar actually means something that is very bright and is very far away and that we don't understand. It comes from the term quasi-stellar source. It's like a star, but it isn't a star, and we don't know what it is, and we don't know really how far away it is. We have an idea that a quasar may be so far away that it takes the light from the quasar 15 billion years to get to the Earth. Another term beyond quasars now is superstrings. What is a superstring? Supposedly a superstring is something that everything is made of way out yonder and that started when the universe began with what most scientists now think was a Big Bang. A Big Bang means the beginning of everything. Quasars, superstrings, and Big Bang. We were in Hawaii last month <clears throat> to visit, well, first of all, one of our graduates of Long Island Lutheran High School who works over there, and secondly, I wanted to see the place where they're building the biggest telescope on Earth. Mauna Kea on the island of Hawaii, the big island of Hawaii, is where some of the largest instruments ever constructed are being put up right now at a cost of many, many hundreds of millions of dollars. And a few weeks ago, the New York Times had the article that already we've made a discovery and have seen something twice as far away as ever before. And then finally in this five-minute capsule of where we are in the real small and the very large is the mind-boggling concept that scientists are now discussing a theory that explains how the universe could have come here out of nothing all by itself. That's called the theory of creation ex nihilo, which means just a fancy term in Latin that the creation out of nothing. And I can tell you from talking to the scientists who are discussing creation ex nihilo that this does not mean that the people who are making up the theory necessarily believe that God did it. That it is entirely possible that all of a sudden one day there was nothing and it became something. And when we ask that scientist talking in front, isn't that rather unusual and strange that something would all of a sudden be out of nothing, happen and become something? He said, yes, it's very strange, but it only has to happen once. Well, so much for where science is today. And you might, you might say, well, isn't that all rather uh, almost funny? Isn't it almost nonsense? Yes, it is, if it weren't all that serious, that this is where it is today, 
And therefore, things are going to come out of these concepts that will have very real and everyday applications. Just like the, the trip we took to the moon and into space grew out of inventions and concepts like the ones I've been telling you. Transistors and radios and, and communications with computers came out of theoretical concepts. So it is important that we pay attention to what people are thinking in their scientific laboratories. Well, so much for, as I say, some of the concepts of today in the field of science. Now, where does that impinge upon our faith as Christians? How do the scientists who do this work feel about God? I had the occasion a few years ago with a very liberal grant by an attorney on Long Island to have the chance to go into a number of countries around the world and to interview the Nobel Prize winners and other leaders in science with the specific question, do you believe that there is a God? And if there is, do you believe in miracles? And what is your own personal faith? The interviews eventually ended up in the book that many of you have seen. I have some others up here called The God of Science. And one conclusion that came out of this work was that the number of scientists who believe in God is the same as the number of people who believe in God generally. That it is not true that by studying science, a person comes to the conclusion that you don't need God anymore. Neither is it necessarily true that by studying science or any other particular subject, you're going to come to a belief in God and in your Savior more easily than other people do. Now, one thing that, as I mentioned before, I was not prepared for by studying science and even by writing science textbooks is the fact that when you read a science text, it always sounds like we know about any particular topic, all just about all there is to know. When we say that we're studying something scientifically, we get the impression sometimes, well, they must know things more certainly than other people do. That in science, they know things more definitely than somebody, say, in the field of business. Well, that is decidedly not the case. Certainty does not exist in science any more than it does anywhere else. We're getting more information all the time from scientific laboratories. It's piling up at a tremendous rate but the information is not dispelling the uncertainty. We have just as much uncertainty about the universe today as we ever have had. In fact, if we've learned anything in science, it is that there are more questions than we used to think there were. The time has long passed that we thought we're getting close to explaining the universe. Every day, it becomes more mysterious. One scientist I talked to, I mentioned the transistor before, Dr. Walter Bratton, who invented the thing in 1948, just died a few weeks ago. In my interview with him, he told me, when you teach your students science, and specifically physics, be sure to tell them that science is not the same thing as religion. That in science, we can only answer questions that begin with the word, how? How does this work? How does that work? If a question begins with the word why, the scientist has no answer. And you should tell your students 
The only answer to a question that begins with why, why are we here, why did this happen in my life, the only answer is God only knows. And you therefore have to ask God. Every class I teach since then, whether at Lutheran High School or Nassau Community College or wherever it is, on the first day, I tell them if I ever ask a question on a test here that begins with why, I want you to write, God only knows, and you'll get 100% for the answer. <laughs> They're all looking for the first thing on a quiz. Where are the why questions? And the kids who forget, of course, will try to answer the question, which is usually a very difficult one. Why is the theory of relativity true or something? They're writing and writing and writing, whereas the correct answer is, God only knows. I had a lecturer from Washington, D.C. once at the college showing the latest pictures of space, rings around Saturn, volcanoes on the moon of, moon Io of Jupiter, and in the dark, in the middle of his presentation, he said, why do you suppose Saturn has rings? And my entire class in the darkness yelled out, God only knows. <laughs> and afterwards he came up to me and said, what's going on in this school? I said, you asked the wrong question. And he doesn't say that anymore. God only knows and God only has the answers. What that means, and this is really the core of my message, there is a difference in everything in life between proof and evidence. Scientists deal with proof, proving this and proving that. In mathematics, we have theorems and we prove them. Proof concerns the head, the mind. And it may sound like a shocking statement, but it is absolutely true that we cannot prove the existence of God. You cannot go into a laboratory and prove that God exists. You cannot aim a telescope into the sky and come up with the rational conclusion that God made it. Neither can you disprove it. So it puts us back squarely in the middle. The question of the existence of God is not a scientific one. It's not a how question. It's a why question. And that's a good thing, because I have also learned in science that every proof eventually gets disproved. And how sad it would be if your faith in God rested on some proof and then somebody found a mistake in the proof. Would you then have to give up your faith? I heard two astronomers argue one time that the existence of eclipses of the sun, that very beautiful and very dramatic occurrence where the sun goes dark at midday and you see the stars and planets come out, that that occurrence is so rare, mathematically so improbable, that therefore there is a God. And then somebody said, suppose the earth and the moon move in such a way that eclipses no longer occur. Does that mean that God has to disappear? We must not make the mistake of resting our faith in God on human intelligence. And proving something is a matter of human intelligence. Our faith rests on something much more secure than scientific proof. It rests, and I want to use the passage out of Luke 17, verse 20, 
When the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come, his answer was, the kingdom of God does not come in such a way as to be seen in a laboratory or in space. No one will say, look, here it is, or look, there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God, faith in our Lord and Savior, is a matter of the heart and not of the head. A person who lives by his head alone is living half a life. The person who lives by his heart alone is not living a complete life. But to live with the head and the heart is what God says will give us peace here and hereafter. Now what does that mean, that our faith is within us? I hope that some of you a few days ago saw how close the moon and Venus got to each other in the evening. The clouds fortunately parted on Long Island, which doesn't happen every day. I can tell you it's going to happen again in May. What was the date? May 19th, thereabout. Watch it. It's going to come around. The moon will come around and very narrowly miss it again. These things, when you see an eclipse, when you see that narrow miss of the moon and Venus, of course they're far apart, they're not really narrowly missing each other, but when you see that awesome sight, it stirs your heart. It leaves your head behind and you say, there must be a God. I mean, how else? Who else could have figured that out? But to say that is resting your faith on your heart, on evidence, on God's works that to you are evidences of his existence. And faith is more absolute than proof. To believe something means it's beyond doubt. You don't prove to somebody that you love your mother. You believe it. You live it. It's absolute. It's there. It does not fall when somebody comes with something tomorrow that shows that the logic of your love was wrong. And that is the kind of thing that God plants in our hearts when Jesus said the kingdom of God is within us. It's within the scientist's heart, unfortunately not in all scientists' hearts, but neither is it in the hearts of people generally. It is in the hearts of those who have received it as a gift of God. And that is why our witness as Christians, as members of a congregation, as members of the larger Christian church, is more relevant and important than ever. We don't create this. We don't argue people into faith. We can't even argue ourselves into faith. We can't create faith in our own hearts, much less in the hearts of others. Luther said in the third article in his explanation, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in my Lord Jesus Christ or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. It is the gift of God. And there is a very important lesson to learn here. I get just as frustrated as you do when we talk to people who simply do not have faith or at least say they don't, or even claim to be agnostics. 
and we feel, what are we doing wrong? Why can't I convince that person to be a Christian? You don't convince people to be Christians. You pray for them that God may give them faith. If it were a matter of logic, we wouldn't need the Bible. We could take any geometry book and say, are you an intelligent person? Let me give you the theorem, there is a God, and then prove it to you. Then we'll go to theorem number two, there is a savior and you need to believe in him. And if he's a rational human being, he would have to come to faith. That's not how it works. That's not why Christ came to earth. He came because it is a matter of the heart. He wanted to show how it's done and that we must be given the faith and that that faith must be sustained by his Holy Spirit. I was brought up in a little community in Michigan that some of you may have heard of by the name of Frankenmuth. If you ever have an opportunity, and you can hear a little Frankenmuth in me perhaps, because I was brought up German. I, taught, I learned English as a foreign language in the second grade, and I'm not so sure it's here to stay. The way many people talk it, it's going down the drain. <laughs> But we had to learn in order to be confirmed, and I'm going, in fact, this is the month of the 50th anniversary of my confirmation, and we're going back there this summer to celebrate it again with my class and to go to communion again together as we did that Sunday 50 years ago. And what we had to do in order to be confirmed was to get out in front of the congregation of some 2,000 people and answer questions from an English pastor and a German one and to recite the Bible passages that we had to memorize by the hundreds before we could be confirmed. I refer to it as my Lutheran boot camp. And I thank God for it, so that I learned how to memorize at a time when it is easiest. I couldn't do that today. If you don't hone your memory as a young person, you're going to have trouble with it later. And as much as we disliked it, it is amazing how easy it is for me today to think about a topic in scripture and to come up with the passage that will support it. I even had a little joke here about how small a community it is. If you ever want a great experience in eating, you go to Frankenmuth, it has in a community of 2,000 people, one of the largest Lutheran churches in the country, where some 400 pastors and teachers have come from the one congregation, and it also has the largest restaurant in America, where they feed up to 10,000 people a day. And I had to leave town, that was my classmate, he's a millionaire feeding people chicken dinners. <laughs> There's another place there where they make Christmas tree ornaments, Brunner's is the largest Christmas tree ornament factory in the country. But most important of all, it is a place where the church is strong and well. It was founded as a, as a mission among the Indians. My father still played with Indian children on his farm. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, the Indians short, shortly thereafter left, and they left these German farmers with no Indians to preach to, so they had to, well, preach to each other and have arguments in theology that honed their faith I thank God for that upbringing. <clears throat> and I learned from that and in my study of science and the Bible that not only is faith a matter of the heart that must be given to us and sustained by the Holy Spirit, 
but that God never denies faith to anyone who asks. And if a person says, well, I cannot convince that person, my friend, my colleague, to be anything but an agnostic, then the thing to do, as I mentioned before, is to pray, because faith will be given to whoever asks for it. I have also learned that walking in faith produces daily miracles. We have a tendency to overlook these. The good things that happen to us, we take for granted. Well, that was supposed to be that way. But when the trouble strikes, we say, why me, God? That's why I like to tell people and myself, make a little list, a daily one, of the miracles that are happening in your life that you cannot otherwise explain. I want to tell you two of them, not for myself so much as for people in the area in which I'm engaged, in science. There's a university here in New York where a professor, each Thanksgiving vacation, would have one last lecture before the kids went home for the holidays. Now this professor claimed to be an atheist. His name was Professor Lee. He was in chemistry. And he told this huge group of students in the large chemistry auditorium of two or three hundred in this class, every Thanksgiving, I want you to watch something I'm going to do now because, he said, I'm convinced there is no God. And I'm going to do a little demonstration here to show you that that is absolutely a true statement. And he would take a flask, and there was a cement floor in this place, and he would hold it above his head and say, I'm going to drop this flask on the floor. And if there's anybody here who thinks that this flask will not break, or who can do something to keep it from breaking, or even pray to God that it won't break, start praying, because I'm going to drop it shortly. Well, one year, a student got there, a freshman, who was a devout Christian. And they told him, when you get into Professor Lee's class, you're going to be very embarrassed. And he said, I've heard about that lecture, and I pray that I'll have the strength to witness to my faith. And when Professor Lee made that lecture again before Thanksgiving and said, is there anyone who wants to pray now? This young student raised his hand and said, yes, I'd like to pray. And the professor ridiculed him and said to the whole group, now isn't that interesting that there is a person here who has such an outmoded idea that there is a God and who can even stop this flask from breaking by contradicting natural laws of gravity. Let's all bow our heads while this young man prays and then I'll drop the bottle. And the young student got to his feet and says, Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for being here for allowing me to be here at this time so that I can witness to you. And Lord Jesus, keep that bottle from breaking. Lee waited till he was done. He dropped the bottle and it hit his shoe and it rolled over and did not break. Professor Lee does not give that lecture anymore. That's witness, that's a miracle. Whether it's a coincidence or not, that was a miracle. And it worked faith in many hearts, where God was ready to enter in and people were ready to receive after a thing like that. I also know a doctor at Nassau Community Medical Center in East Middle who wanted to do an experiment scientifically on the power of prayer. 
This was written up in the American Medical Association Journal. He was in charge of the children's ward, where there were a number of children who had spinal meningitis. He took the names of those children in his ward and divided them into two parts. Half of those names he sent to a minister in Washington, D.C., and said, I would like you to pray specifically for the children in my ward on these cards who have spinal meningitis. The other half he put in his drawer. Spinal meningitis is very fatal. A few months later, all the children whose names were in the drawer had died. Of the children who were prayed for by the congregation in Washington, D.C., over half of them were home and healthy. Now, when I heard the doctor who did this experiment tell about it in an address where I was present, he said there were people who wrote to him and who said they did not believe in God, but they believed that it was unchristian to do that experiment. Now, something doesn't chime. Either they were lying when they said they didn't believe in God, or was it a miracle? Yes, it was a miracle. Each of us can recount, I'm sure, miracles in their own lives. I want to conclude with a little scientific parable. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, it says that he did not teach without parables. Rabbi means teacher. I have always been proud to be in the same profession as our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the master teacher, and he knew that people's attention wanders unless they have something real to focus on. So he told stories about flowers and about seeds and about wheat. And if he were alive in, among us today physically, he would tell parables about computers and about quarks and about quasars. I owe this little parable that I'm going to do for you to Dr. Hubert Elliot, whom I had the privilege of interviewing at Princeton University. Dr. Elliot is considered to be the greatest chemistry professor in the world. He goes all over the world and shows other countries how to teach this subject. He also teaches Sunday school at his church in Princeton. He is a devout Christian, and he says when you teach, use your chemistry and your physics to put across spiritual principles so that people remember it better. So I would like to, before I get away from the microphone, summarize what I've said and then nail it down with a little demonstration that hopefully will work. Every time you do it, you never know for sure is it going to work. That's why I always call my demonstrations tricks. If it doesn't work, it was a trick. But it's not such a thing that it didn't work. I did something wrong. Well, now we've got the tension up a little higher where people say, well, I wonder what he'll look like if it doesn't work. We study the universe with our heads. We believe in our Savior with our hearts. This makes a person a good scientist, and a healthy and happy Christian. Now, the demonstration revolves around sin and grace. 
created, there was no sin. Clear water, right? But then sin entered. And things got a little darker. Now we have the blackness of sin. But thanks be to God that he sent his son whose blood cleanses us from all sin, which is represented by the red liquid. Thank you very much for the opportunity to share the faith with you, my fellow believers.